We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 tonight, but I'd like you first to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read some of these verses. They are very relevant to what we're going to discuss tonight. This is one of the foundational stories of the book of Genesis tonight. We're talking about the flood, talking about Noah's ark. And aside from the creation of the world in six days, this is probably the most contested portion of Scripture, especially in Genesis. There are many who are even willing to compromise on the six days of creation and say, okay, maybe, maybe the, the literalists, as they call us, have something here. But when it comes to the flood, not a chance. It's, it's what you call a linchpin. You ever play that game Kerplunk where you have all the, the needles poked through the middle and then a bunch of marbles and you have to try and pull them out without the marbles falling? The flood is the one you pull and all the marbles come crashing down. And Peter explains this to us here. If we don't get this, we're going to have a very hard time explaining a lot of other things. So let's read now 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter reminds us here to remember that the flood was a real event. And he explains that there are certain false teachers and scoffers who will come, and part of their approach is going to be to forget the flood, to deliberately overlook it. The flood is an event that Jesus Christ himself took seriously, as we will see. It's in Luke 17. We're going to read from Matthew a little bit later. That Jesus treated the flood and Noah as real things that happened. And Peter is warning us not to be lulled into what we called at the very beginning uniformitarianism. It's a long word, but it just comes from the word uniform. And this is the belief that the way things are are the way things always have been. That the world is now as it has always been. That the stars and the planets are moving like they've always moved. That the water cycle is working as it has always worked. That animals are reproducing as they've always reproduced. That rock layers are being built at the same rate. That's uniformitarianism. It's a reasonable conclusion, I, I guess you could say, but the longer you think about it, the more arrogant and foolish it becomes, especially when you're thinking about it through the layer of Scripture. The flood story is absolutely incompatible with belief in uniformitarianism. If you believe that the world exists as it has always existed, the idea that there was a great flood is impossible. People want to say, well, look, though, we have all these rock layers, we have sedimentary deposits, we have all these things, and that proves that the world 
was made as it is over millions or billions of years, and we don't need a flood. But what the Bible tells us is that there was a cataclysmic flood. And the question then becomes, if there was something like that, would the world look something like this? And the answer is yes. So the idea that, well, there's these fossils we've discovered, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't address why we believe in the flood. Because they're saying, well, you needed all this time or it couldn't have happened. We're saying there was something so catastrophic that it did in a short amount of time what normally would have taken a very long time. And not only that, but Peter says here in this passage, the world that then existed perished. We've hit this several times. The rules at the beginning of creation were different. We've already seen how biology was different. These people lived be almost a thousand years. The animals were all vegetarian. The ecology was different. We're going to look at that a lot tonight. Spirituality was even different. But in this story, the flood story, God changed those rules. Why? Out of judgment for the wickedness of the world. And so what Peter is really saying here is to ignore the fact that God sent cataclysmic judgment before is to make it very difficult to prepare adequately for the judgment that is going to come. Except that time it's not going to be by water, it's going to be by fire. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, that is, they weren't worried about whether or not they had enough time, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We live in days like that, a lot like the days of Noah. The world does not believe that judgment like this is even possible. That, that would mean that the way things are would have to change, and we know that doesn't happen. And not only that, they don't even believe that judgment is warranted. They say things like God would be wrong to judge the world. They've forgotten the flood. But you know, we also live at a time that's greater than the one that Noah lived in. Because God has provided a way of escape. Not just escape from death, but escape from what's after death. Escape from hell itself. Not through a physical ark, but through his only son, Jesus Christ. So I'm excited to get into this story with you. We're not going to touch on a whole lot of the science today. We're going to look at it some, but... I did want to touch on that at the beginning because it's very prevalent. It's everywhere. And I think Peter makes the point very clearly that you're deliberately overlooking what the Bible says. And that when you read the Bible as the Bible is written, the world makes a lot of sense. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 6. We're actually going to read from verse 9 to the end of chapter 7 today. The story of Noah covers several chapters, so... We're going to do it in chunks, but they're big chunks. The way that ancient writers used to tell their stories a lot was in cycles. They would repeat themselves. We'll see this a lot when we get in Kings and Chronicles and those sorts of stories. And it can get tedious, but they're trying to make a point. They're trying to emphasize what's going on. So that's why we have these big sections. But let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, 
Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so in verse 9, we see that phrase that I hope you're becoming familiar with. These are the generations. This is the organizing statement of the book of Genesis. So this is, remember the word, toledoth. That's that word, generations. And we've seen this three times already. First was in chapter 2, verse 4, after creation, when it said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, these are the generations of Adam. Now in chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. And this will continue throughout the book of Genesis, and it, it helps organize, it helps give it some structure. We met Noah last week. He is the son of Lamech. He is the tenth generation from Adam. And we saw that his father named him Noah in hopes that Noah would be the one that would see the relief from all the wickedness on the world, and he certainly was. We also saw last time the wickedness that was increasing, including the very specific perverse wickedness of the Nephilim, of those who were marrying and interbreeding with demons. And I'm not going to dive any farther into that. If you missed last week, you're going to have to go back and listen to it. I know it sounds strange. It is strange. But it was very, very wicked. And so that sort of sets up what we see in chapter 6. You understand that it wasn't just normal sin. We've gone way beyond normal sin. And these verses reemphasize it. The violence, it says. The corruption of the world. Sin was first introduced in the Garden of Eden. We saw that tragic story. And at this point, it is spread like an infection to every heart. And some men were better than others. You had men like Enoch, the line of Seth that was calling on the name of the Lord. But you also had men like Cain, who had children like Lamech, not Noah's father, a different Lamech, who was the first one to marry two women and reveled in being a man of violence. And, of course, Satan was helping that process right along, trying to corrupt the line of promise, you remember. All the magnificent things that God has made, all of the potential of the world was corrupt beyond repair. And God tells Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. It's a really abrupt thing almost to read in Genesis because it starts out so great. Starts out of the Garden of Eden. It's perfect. It's wonderful. And then it goes downhill fast. And now the Lord says, I have determined to make an end. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20 says that the soul who sins shall die. The Lord had warned Adam and Eve back in Genesis 2.17, the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Surely die in Hebrew is Dying you shall die. Sin is a virus in the system. It's not part of what God made. It's, it's anti-real. It ruins everything. It's the inverse of who God is. And there are a lot of folks that want to say, well, evil is just as strong as good because they're opposites. That's not true. Evil is worse and weaker and corrupting. It, does, it doesn't hold a candle to what God could have done. And because God himself is perfect and God himself is just, 
completely untainted by sin, as the creator, he has a right and a duty to judge sin. The wages of sin is death. We're very prepared to accept that when we're talking about other people. We talk about Hitler or Stalin or Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun. We're like, yeah, wages of sin is death. You get what you deserve, buddy. Now we're talking about you. Well, it seems a little harsh, don't you think? We all fall under that same judgment. The wages of sin is death. And Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we know that sin leads to death. Okay, well, who has sinned? Everyone. The pie chart is a circle. <laughs> Until Jesus came and then you had one little sliver that said Jesus Christ. All have sinned. All fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Now, that's demonstrably true. This should not be hard to prove that everyone is a sinner. It should be easy to say, you know, you do wrong things sometimes. Yeah, I do. And everybody does, really. That's even a defense that people will throw up. Have you ever seen that? Say, well, you're a sinner. Well, everybody does it. You're like, okay, good. Now we're getting somewhere. That is the point. And it's very hard for people to overcome that. Not because it's hard to demonstrate that it's true, but because the implications of it are so heavy. If everyone is corrupt in their heart, not saying that everybody is equally sinful, but if everybody has the same disease, well, we've got a problem, don't we? But let's just take a second and think about this. Have you not observed in your own life your own sinful tendencies? When I say, well, I discipline myself and I work hard to make sure that I'm a good man. The fact that you need to discipline yourself and you need to work hard. You don't accidentally become a good person. You have to work hard to be a good person. And it's good that you're working hard. Please don't stop. But you have to recognize the fact that you are working hard because it doesn't come naturally to you. You have to teach your children to be good. You don't have to teach them to be evil. They get that all on their own. And they were doing it long before TV and violent video games, let me tell you. This is not a new thing. Look at your own life. Selfishness in your life. Lust in your life. Resentment and anger and bitterness in your life. Don't those things ruin everything they touch? Even if you enjoy it in the moment, you want to cover it up and keep it secret. Why? Because you know the moment you let it out, it's going to cause trouble. That's what sin is. And it's in you. Even if some people lean into it and let it out, most normal people try to at least cover some of it up. That impulse is because we know it's not right, but it's in there. You ever have a thought run through your mind and you go, whoa, where did that come from? Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Think, you know what I'd like to do? You ever sit there and pray, Lord, I hope that a police officer pulls that guy over. I'm going to slow down and roll down my window and laugh in their face. Cop's not going to get me. He's already writing the ticket for them. Vengeance. That's... That's infant vengeance in your heart. You can feed that monster if you want, and then one day you might actually do something, and then you keep going. Say, well, I would never do that. You've got something, though. You've got something. Well, now that we understand, okay, yeah, fine, we all sin, but then everybody wants to quibble about the consequences. Once that's established, okay, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is death? Give me a break. Everybody does it. That's too much. But I think even that is a failure to 
understand what sin does. It's actually probably less of that, and it's more an attempt to say, well, if everybody does it, you can't punish us all. You ever have a teacher that you said something like that, and they said, watch me. Can't fail everybody. Oh, yes, I can. I had a teacher that would do that. Her name was Mrs. Bear. She was my fifth grade math teacher. And we had, we had those sheets that had 100 multiplication table problems on them, and you had one minute to do it. You ever do that? If you didn't get past a certain number, then you failed, and you had to do it again. And there was one time everyone didn't make it. And we're fifth grade philosophers, so we're thinking, well, clearly the problem is with the test. Because if, if the problem was with us, at least some of us would have passed because, you know, we're really smart. And she comes in and she gave us all a zero. And we were, oh, can you believe that? It's like, uh, yeah, you earned a zero. And that's the same thing except it's on a cosmic level. Well, you can't lump me in the same category as Attila the Hun. Why not? So I didn't do all that stuff. But it's in there. It's in there. The wages of sin is death. Look at what sin has unleashed on the world. Even through you. Look at your own life. Look at the damage you have caused to other people because of the way you have acted. The wages of sin is death and all have sinned. So the Lord says, I'm going to wipe out all life on the earth. But you know what we see? Right at the beginning of this section, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That's interesting because we just discussed how the whole world was corrupt and we're all full of sin. And here's Noah. Now, it does not mean that he was perfect. Anytime you see that word righteous or blameless in Scripture, you've got to understand that doesn't mean that they didn't sin. Because somebody comes along named Jesus who doesn't sin and it's kind of a big deal, okay? Blameless. In 8.21, chapter 8.21, Noah is going to sin, and we're going to discuss it. He wasn't perfect. But you know what he did? He did two things, and we saw both of them back in chapter 4. Number one, as God said to Cain in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must what? Rule over it. He says, Cain, I know it's in you, but you've got to step up and master your passions. Noah was the kind of man who did that. Sin was still in him, but he ruled over it. He did what God had commanded him to do. And the second thing, which we also saw at the end of chapter 4, it said that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the second thing. Because even if Cain never sinned again, he still had had wrath and bitterness in his heart. So what do we got to do? We call on the name of the Lord. We throw ourselves at his feet and ask for mercy. This is the other thing Noah did. Noah didn't say, well, I've mastered my passion, so I'm perfect. God can't judge me. He knew that even though he mastered his passions, he still needed the mercy of God. So he walked with God. He called on the name of the Lord. Those are the two things. My good friend from back in Virginia, he's with the Lord now, but he used to say, you can sum up all theology in that hymn, trust and obey. What do I got to do as a Christian? Trust the Lord and obey the Lord. That's what Noah did. He trusted the Lord, he walked with God, he called on his name, and he obeyed the Lord. And each one of us is expected to do that. We are expected to do our best with what we've got. The Lord said that to Cain, to identify our worst tendencies and then to strive to overcome them. You're not going to earn your salvation that way, but if you're going to be, well, 
God's going to save me anyway, so I'm just going to sin a whole bunch. Paul says that that's evidence that you haven't actually been saved. So we're going to dispense with that. We want to rise above our generation. Noah was in a wicked generation, but he kept it together because he called on the name of the Lord. And as we saw last week, he had a very godly heritage going back to Seth and even to Adam. We strive to do right. But we obviously cannot totally eradicate sin, so we have to call on the name of the Lord. You do your best, but you come to God and you say, Lord, I'm not perfect. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your help. Romans 13, 14 sums this up very well. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting the fact that you can't save yourself, trusting the grace of God to save you, but also making no provision for the flesh. Mastering sin that's crouching at the door. God is merciful, but people who live in flagrant sin will receive no kindness from him. You're playing basketball or soccer, and you commit a foul on accident. You'll still get the whistle, but maybe the next time the ref sees it, he'll give you a little slack. But if you're smacking into people all game long, and then you do one that was on accident, you're not getting any slack because you've been throwing your elbows around all game long. You don't get to get indignant because he got one of them wrong, or I didn't mean it. But you know what? Those who do their best in humility, God accepts them. Isn't that amazing? That this sinful race of people that God's made, they are full of sin. They cannot be perfect. But the ones that try and then come to him for the rest, he says, I'll accept that. That's the mercy and the love of God. And that's who Noah was. But he lived in a world at that time, and at this time now and in the last days, that was full of violence and full of corruption. So the Lord announces his intention to eradicate all life. A lot of people want to talk about justice, and that's a good thing. We like justice. We're Christians. But justice is no picnic. This is real justice. This is eye for an eye. This is God giving the unjust what they deserve. And we see that that's so horrible. Well, it only feels horrible because we are so accustomed to living in sin. We've lost touch with how wicked it actually is. But God has a plan. You know the plan. I don't have to spoil it. Let's read verse 14 down to chapter 7, verse 5. Long section here. The Lord says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. 
Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So God is going to destroy all flesh. He is going to send the flood. But he plans to save Noah, his family, and some of every kind of animal. How is he going to do this? He tells Noah to build an ark. This is the Hebrew word teva. This is like Moses' basket. It was called an ark. It's the same word. Not like the Ark of the Covenant. It's two different words. I just want to specify. This is a seagoing ark. It is basically an enormous boat to preserve them during the flood. Now, this is another point of scoffing here. How could a caveman build a boat that could hold two of every kind of animal? Don't you know how many species of animals they are? Well, this misses two things here. Number one, it misses the sophistication of the ark that we see right here. It also misses the size of the ark. God gave him the plans. I don't know why this has been a problem for so long. It's right there. You could build your own ark if you want to. Just follow the instructions. It was made of gopher wood. We have no idea what gopher wood is. Gopher is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. But gopher wood, whatever it is, it's, it's really good for making arcs is all I can tell you. He says, seal it with pitch inside and out because there's going to be a lot of water. So you can see the, the sophistication here. This isn't just make a raft and float on it. God's like, look, there's going to be leaks. You've got to have pitch on this thing. It needs to have a door. It needs to have, the ESV translates it, a roof. Other translations have window. That word there is kind of unclear. The idea is that it's something that goes on top. I'm sure it had a roof. <laughs> and we know from later on that it had a window. So it's okay. We'll move on. That it had three decks. And it had rooms. That word for room is very interesting. The word there is nest, like for a bird's nest. So he says, you're going to have a bunch of nests for all the different animals. Just a little interesting note there. I thought that was fun. Not just the animals, but also he said, you're going to need to bring a lot of food. I'm trying to draw out the sophistication here. That this isn't just like, like some ancient legends where he picked a very big banana leaf and floated on it. And they said, well, the Bible is just like that. No, it's not. <laughs> he said, I want you to build it, and it's got to be huge, and it's got to have a roof, and it's got to have pitch, and it's got to have rooms, and it's got to have food. Now, how big exactly was this thing? picture we have here, this is from the Creation Museum in Kentucky, I believe. It's right there in the tri-state area. And those are normal-sized humans, and that's the ark, according to the scale that we have here in the Bible. I like that they built that because I hope that shuts up forever. People asking, how could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? Like that. That's how he could do it. Now, it measures it here and throughout the Old Testament in cubits. A cubit, if you hold up your arm like this, was from fingertip to elbow. So we measure things in feet. They measure things in cubits. 
approximately 18 inches is a cubit. So if you want to get a measurement out of something in the Bible that's in cubits, multiply it by 1.5, and that's how many feet it was. So this would have been an enormous thing. 97,500 square feet of deck alone. That's not the volume of the whole thing. That's how much square footage you would have had on each of the decks. That's a lot. One person said that this is approximately 522 railroad cars meant for hauling livestock. 522. And each one of those holds approximately 240 sheep. So that means that Noah, according to that estimate, would have been able to fit 125,280 sheep-sized critters on the ark. That's a lot. It's a few. Now, obviously, some of them would have been smaller than that. Some of them would have been bigger than that. But the point I'm trying to make here is there was room. And if you needed to bring a big animal like an elephant or a brontosaurus, you don't have to bring a, an old one. Bring a, <laughs> bring a baby that can actually fit on the thing. But I want you to see the scale of that. That's what Noah was instructed to build. And keep in mind, too, God said to take two of every kind. This is the Hebrew word min. This is important for us to know because people want to get smart and say, well, do you know how many species of animal there are? Not every species, every kind. German shepherds, pit bulls, Labradors, and poodles are all dogs, but Noah would not have needed all of them. He would have needed two dogs, and those dogs would have had enough genetic coding to make all the dogs that we have today. Now, all of a sudden, we see we're reducing what we need here. You don't need every kind of frog. He's out there in the rainforest trying to trap every color of, of tree frog. Just needed two frogs. And I don't know exactly where the, the level would have stopped, but Noah was smart enough to figure it out. And Noah had 120 years to build this ark. Chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord had said that the the amount of time he was giving for man until he would judge them, the years of his mercy, were 120 years. So now, okay, it's got to be big. So we've got over the, the technical side here, but how is he going to build this thing? Well, if I had 120 years, maybe I could figure it out too. That's enough time to learn how to be a pretty good carpenter. Maybe Noah was a shipbuilder to begin with. It doesn't say. Maybe he already knew how to do this. Who's to say he couldn't have paid contractors to come in and build it for him? They didn't believe why he was building the ark, but they could have helped him with it. And I think we need to remember, too, these were technologically advanced people. We've already seen that they had metalworking. We've seen they had music. They had cities. They were building walls. God didn't create idiots. God created sophisticated, smart people. They probably were smarter than we were. And, you know, we get real arrogant, too, when we look back and talk about how inferior former cultures were, but we keep on discovering all these things that former cultures did that kind of blow us away and we still can't figure it out. We love the pyramids, no idea how they built them. We get over to the Mayan culture, and we're like, how did they do that? How did they move those rocks? They figured it out. So all that to say, these questions that people want to throw out, they're interesting to think about, but they're not game changers. And if you actually read the text of scripture, it'll answer a lot of it for you without having to do any extra research. But twice in this section, it says, Noah did all that God commanded him. And then he says, I have seen that you are righteous. This is, you know, the Lord saves us by, by faith. But the Lord also gives us plenty of opportunities to demonstrate our faith. We're not saved by our works. But if you truly have faith, then it should be a joy for you to do what the Lord tells you to do. 
This is the ark, God's plan of salvation. We're going to read in a few months, I would expect, Genesis 18.25, where Abraham is discussing with God the destruction of Sodom. And it relates closely to this passage. The Lord told Abraham he was going to destroy the city. And Abraham said to him, Far be it from you to do us such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares at the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is appealing to God's character. And he's saying, God, you are good. And because you are good, you will not punish the righteous with the unrighteous. This is one of the most important principles in the whole Bible. You have to know this. God does not punish the just with the unjust. A good man and a wicked man will not be treated the same way by God. He always makes a way of escape for his people. God is going to deliver Noah from the flood. We're going to see in chapter 18 of Genesis and beyond that God delivers Lot out of Sodom. God's bringing judgment, but he's going to get Lot out. Because if he were to destroy Lot, Lot didn't deserve that. He's going to deliver Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah out of Babylon before the destruction comes. For those who walk blamelessly before the Lord, as Noah did, not perfect but blameless, God shows compassion and does not pour out his wrath on them. This does not mean that you will not suffer, but God himself will not judge you with his own hand. What do you say? Praise the Lord. It's nice to know that. We see it here. We see it countless times in Scripture. The righteous are not punished with the unrighteous. God gets the righteous out first, repeatedly, which is one reason among many why we believe that the rapture of the saints will happen prior to the Great Tribulation. A lot of people want to accuse people who believe that the rapture comes first. They'll say, well, you just you think that God won't have you suffer. Doesn't the Bible say that the righteous have to suffer? Yes. But I also have been in a pre-trib church my entire life and went to a pre-trib seminary and have never once heard that sermon. So let's leave that aside. We believe, among other reasons, we will not go through the tribulation because the tribulation is not just a hard time. It's God pouring out his wrath on the world. It's judgment. It's the flood. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the destruction of Sodom. And for God to say that my wrath has all been poured out on Jesus Christ, and then to turn around and say, now here's some more wrath for you, that would not be consistent with his character. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ark. He's the one that bears us up when the floods of judgment come. We no longer have to face the wrath of God under our own power. Isn't that awesome? You're going to stand before God and Jesus is your defense attorney. That's, that's my pick if I had to pick anybody. That's what the ark is in, in Noah's day. It's a symbol of God's grace. And there's other reasons why we believe that the rapture comes first. I'm not going to dive into them today, but this is one of the passages that supports that position. But whatever your eschatology is, we can all rejoice that God has called us righteous even though we're sinful and has chosen to save us even though we don't deserve it. And that after death, we have the hope of heaven rather than the fear of everlasting fire. Good, good friend of mine lost his mother this last week. 
And I was talking to him on the phone, and we both were saying, I don't know how I would get through this if I didn't have Jesus. If I didn't know that heaven was waiting on the other side, I don't know how I would walk through this. That's why Paul says we do not grieve as the world grieves. God loves his people. He loves to show salvation and mercy. And this is what he's doing here. Noah built the ark. But let's read verse 6 now. Down to verse 16. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, specific, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood came, just as the Lord had warned. The flood came, and only Noah and his family, with two of every kind of animal, two of every unclean animal, seven of every clean animal. You can read Leviticus 11 for descriptions of what that is. I'm not going to get into it now. They were in the ark when God shut the door. And I love how he says... 600th year, second month, 17th day of the month. You tend to remember days like that. It's also that kind of detail that lends credibility to this story because there's no symbolism to that. It's apparently random, but it's not random because that's the day it happened on. And Noah, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, was called a herald of righteousness. For 120 years, he had been warning of the flood while he built the ark. He was a circus, man. I think people would have been coming, look, this dude building this boat. How, how are you going to get that thing in the water? The Lord's going to send rain. Oh, the Lord's going to send rain. There's going to be a flood. Why is that? Because you're all so wicked and so evil. Oh, you're so right, Mr. Noah, and you're so great and perfect, right? They scoffed at him. Because according to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, up to this point, there had been no rain yet. Remember, this is a world that has perished. It's not like the one we live in now. No bush of the field was yet in the land, it says, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Remember, we talked about that back in chapter 2, the mist that was going up. That word is a little unclear. It could mean spring because it's talking about water coming up. The idea is there were springs of water under the earth that irrigated the surface of the earth and mist came up and the dew was heavy and they didn't need rain. And the people in Noah's day, they were uniformitarians too. 
You, you mean water is going to fall from the sky? Water doesn't come down. Water comes up, you kook. Are you nuts? Who's ever heard of such a thing? They had never seen rain, so they denied its existence. They didn't believe that anything that cataclysmic could ever happen. Sound familiar? I'm sure even Noah had his doubts, too. And what do you think, around year 75, 76? They, they had their 100-year celebration of building the ark. You don't think he ever had a moment lying in bed where he goes, what is going on with me? What is wrong with me? I'm, I'm only 550. I'm the best years of my life. <laughs> and I spent them building an ark. What about his kids? What about his daughters-in-law? What family did I marry into? <laughs> then all these animals start showing up. Note, note, by the way, Noah did not have to go and round up all these animals. Okay? The Lord sent them to him. They load them up. They load up the food. They climb inside. And I like to think it was like Elijah when he said, all right, the Lord's going to send rain, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Until, verse 16, God shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door. The Lord shut them in the ark, probably, I think, before a single drop of rain fell. There's a sign of his mercy here that the Lord is closing them up. The Lord is going to protect them. He's going to hold them. And if you needed a door big enough to get all them animals inside, probably was a big one. So imagine it just moving on its own. Doors shut. It's a chilling sign also of the end of God's patience. It is officially, when that door shuts, too late. God is gracious and God desires to see all come to repentance. But there comes a point in every person's life where God says, enough, and leaves them to their own fate. Romans chapter 1, 28 explains this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And Paul goes on more in that passage. He uses the example of homosexuality. He uses the example of idolatry. Things that are so foreign to nature in good sense. But Paul says this is because God has given people up. Consider Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He hardened his heart over and over and over again. But then after the sixth plague, after the plague of boils, it changes and it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God locked him in to his decision. He had had chance after chance, and he was insistent in his disobedience. So God locked him in. He hardened his heart. Jeremiah 7.16, the Lord told Jeremiah, Stop praying for the people. I'm not going to hear your prayers. It's too late. I am going to judge them. His patience had run out. For individuals, for nations... For the whole world, there comes a point where God shuts the door. I've been giving you space to repent, but now the door is shut. Is it fair for God to do this? Absolutely. God would be justified in judging you the first time. God would have been justified in flooding the earth when Eve bit that apple for the first time. God is not obligated to rehabilitate anybody. He does it out of his grace and out of his mercy and out of his compassion and his love for the people he's created. But you must understand, his justice is just as strong as his mercy. 
Push God out of your life, and eventually he will leave. I remember it was a national day of prayer many years ago. I was still in middle school, I think, and I went to a, an event for the national day of prayer, and there was this skit that somebody did, and it was a skit of all these people pushing to get God and prayer and the Ten Commandments and all that out of the schoolroom. And then it ended with a depiction of a school shooting and some woman crying out and saying, where is God? Where is God? And the whole point was, you just spent decades pushing God out. And now you're going to say, where's God? And I'm not trying to make any more out of that than the fact that it hit me. It made this point that God shuts the door. Maybe you've seen this in somebody's life. When somebody reaches a breaking point, where before they were open to the gospel, you could have conversations, and then just one day, bam, it's like a different person talking to you. I've seen this happen a lot when a person does something that's very drastic, as if there's an act of rebellion that just puts them in opposition to the Lord, and the Lord allows them to do that. Often when somebody up and leaves the church, this is why I get very concerned when I see people not coming around for a while, because I've seen people where they had some issues, they had some problems, maybe they were making trouble, but finally they say, forget it, I'm not coming to church anymore, and you catch up with them a year later, and their life has just spiraled out of control. You see what their life looks like without the restraint of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times when I see somebody commit a major sexual sin as well, I've seen this happen, where for certain people, it's different for different people, they, they cross over a certain line and you just see everything change in their life. And you're like, what happened? God shuts the door. Even now, right now, Jesus is standing at the door of the ark, so to speak. He's preaching. He's begging people to come into the ark. He sent us out to say, draw as many people as you can. But when the rains come, or in our case, when the fire comes, it's going to be too late. Do not think you can continue indefinitely in your sin and that there will be no consequences. Do not think to yourself, well, I'll wait till I'm old and then I'll give my life to Christ. That's what old people do when they're getting ready to go to heaven and they want to get everything right. What makes you think you're going to have the same spiritual sensitivity then that you do now? You're not guaranteed that. And you, Christian. Do not think that the person you're speaking to has infinite chances to deny God and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. God shuts the door. Now, we cannot see God's hand. And I will never be the one to look anybody in the eye or stand here and say, for that person or this nation or whatever, God has shut the door. Because you are not God and you have no right as a man to say that about anybody. Your job is to preach like this is the day. That's your job, to be continually presenting the gospel. But you've got to let the fact, the biblical theological fact, that there is such thing as a point of no return, drive you past your own embarrassment to preach the gospel to these people. Preachers are supposed to preach, one famous man said, as a dying man to dying men. This could be it. This could be it for them. This could be the end of their life, or it could be their last chance where the Lord allows them to go their own way, where the Lord shuts the door. That should cause us to weep in prayer over people and to exhort them with fire in our bellies because this might be it.
Sometimes you've got to love people better than they know how to love themselves. It's a sobering thing, isn't it? God shut the door. Because what happened? It began to rain. 40 days and 40 nights. Read verse 17 with me. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The flood came. Every living thing on the face of the earth was drowned beneath the deluge of God's wrath. It's not a kid's story. And it's okay to teach it to your children. I'm not going to guilt anybody. But this is the story of God's wrath being poured out on the world. Everyone on the earth died. That word he uses in 23 for blotted out is the Hebrew word macha. It can even mean to wash or to erase to scrub something out. And God scrubbed the earth of the wickedness of primeval man. I want to go back to this previous section a little bit because you can see the mechanics of what happened. Verse 11, it says, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Remember those mists, those springs that were irrigating the ground? The Lord busted them wide open. Verse 7 of chapter 1 called that the waters below. And it says in verse 11 here that the windows of the heavens were opened. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters above. And it is possible, some have speculated, have brought it up a few times, that the way the, the world was then, that the waters above were a canopy of water that covered the world and preserved the climate and other, other things. And I think that's certainly possible. I don't think the scripture makes it certain. But those who believe that say that that whole canopy of water just came crashing down. It could be whatever it was, the waters above came down and the waters below came up. He unmade the world. Do you remember back in chapter 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the what? The waters. And then when God made the world, he separated the waters above from the waters below. When God sent the flood, it all came back. He unmade the world. It says the mountains were covered, 15 cubits. That's about 22 and a half feet. 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. And the ark floated over it all. There are some folks who want to say this is not a global flood. It's a local flood. The language of the text does not allow for that. And the root of that is, is a denial. They say, well, we, we already know that the fossil layers don't allow for a global flood, so we don't want the Bible to be embarrassed, so we'll say it was a local flood. No. <laughs> Luke 17, 27, when Jesus refers to the flood, do you know what word he uses in Greek there? Greek word is cataclysmos, where we get our word cataclysm. 
If you had a cataclysm of water on the earth, don't you think that it would change the shape of the world a little bit? And that there'd be a few fossils made in those moments? Nahum, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sin is no joke. You cannot expect to mock God and scoff at his word and live in direct contradiction of his commandments and somehow enter heaven when you die. It doesn't matter how nice the funeral is. It doesn't matter how nice the tributes that people make to you. It doesn't matter the, the fun stories that are left behind. If you do not know God... The only thing waiting for you on the other side of death is judgment. And we live in a similar time to when Noah was building the ark. Judgment is coming. And we are out there telling people, and they're not listening. But this time it's going to be judgment by fire. 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve that judgment. So the question to ask yourself is, what are you going to do about it? If you deserve the judgment by fire, what are you going to do about it? The Lord has an ark. He has a way of salvation. His son died on the cross to suffer the wrath of God for you. And then he rose from the dead as a promise of eternal life. And if you confess that you're a sinner, if you acknowledge your guilt, if you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and you beg for forgiveness and you beg for mercy, God is kind. He will give it to you. He will forgive you and he will bring you into his love and his mercy. But make no mistake, you put that off and you might find yourself on the outside of the ark when God shuts the door. How do you think it was like when Noah climbed into the ark, and the Lord shut the doors. And there's people, I'm sure, living nearby, living in the village, spend their days mocking and laughing at him or pitying the poor, crazy old man. And then someone gets hit on the head with a drop of rain. They're like, what is that? Never heard of that. And then hits the ground over there. The raindrops start falling. What is happening? What is this? This is so weird. This is so strange. At first, it's fun. It's kind of cute. This is, oh, this is new. I've never seen this before. The kids are running around, jumping and playing in the puddles, and people are, you know, taking their shirts off in the field. Oh, finally getting cooled off under this sun. But the rain doesn't stop. It keeps coming. And then maybe it's that night, and they're thinking, is it going to stop? It just keeps coming. I'm starting to get worried, honey. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. Then all of a sudden, somebody hears something like, and the ground splits open, and the water comes gushing out like a geyser, like Old Faithful in Yellowstone Park, and the water starts rushing past the house, and somebody thinks, Noah was right. Noah was absolutely, get the kids, we're going. We're going to the ark, we're going right now. And they run, and you're running to get there. They get above the, the water line a little bit, and they think they're going to make it, and they see the ark, but the doors are shut. Noah, open the door. Let us in. Noah, please, my kids are out here. And now there's a lot of people, they're all banging it and the water's rising. It's up to their legs now. 
Noah's in the ark hearing them screaming, begging to get let onto the ark. Finally, the, the water gets so high, the ark shifts and it comes free of its support beams and starts to float. And they hear every man, woman, and child in the earth drowning outside that ark. And Noah's in there. What do you think he's thinking? I told you. I told you this was coming. You laughed at me. Do you think he was saying, Lord, please, can't we open the door? And God said, no. The door is shut. They had 120 years of preaching, and I said, no. 40 days and 40 nights, the fountains of the deep breaking open. Now they can't even see the mountains anymore. It's just water. Judgment is coming. Bible tells us that in the last days when God pours out his wrath, there are going to be people that cry out to the mountains to fall on them. Please, just let me die. It says in Revelation, there will be people who seek death, but God will not allow them to find it. The story of Noah reminds us of the certainty of judgment. The world has forgotten the flood. And it's working very hard to stamp out the voice of those who remember it. And even those who are supposed to remember and supposed to remind the world and supposed to be saying, no, this did happen and that's how we know the next one is coming and you too must repent. They're so embarrassed that they've chosen to just ignore it. I don't want to talk about that. No one wants to come to church and hear about sin. No one wants to come to church and hear about judgment. I'm going to bum everybody out. Let them come in here. What are they going to say on the day when you're standing at the right hand of God while the world burns? Your neighbors, your friends, your family. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We're in the same position. We have been warned by God of events yet to come and commanded to bring people into that ark, and his name is Jesus Christ. But if we neglect the news that the flood is coming, we neglect the bad news because we don't want to bum people out. We're afraid folks will leave the church. Why should they listen to us? Who wants to get on a floating barn with no clouds on the horizon? Hey, join our church. We've got cookies. How about you need Jesus because judgment is coming and the Lord is going to burn the whole earth with a fervent heat and everything you've ever lived and worked for is going to be gone. Well, they don't want to listen to that. Jesus told us they wouldn't want to listen to us. He told us they wouldn't listen. He said, you've got to go anyway because they need to hear it. And you're the only ones. You are the caretaker of ancient knowledge from God with the responsibility to tell everyone. You can't keep it to yourself. We cannot just preach the benefits of salvation, although there are many benefits to salvation. We can't just teach life lessons, although life lessons are important. We've got to preach the bad news for the good news to have any significance at all. This is why kids are leaving the church. You guys want to know why that is? If you tell people Jesus can give you a good life, but you never tell them that they're dying and going to hell, then they're going to say, well, I can find a good life over here. What do I need Jesus for? And now you have people, young folks, ready to listen to the first person who believes in what they say 
who believes it, who's willing to tell them, not, well, what do you think about that? Who's willing to tell them this is the way it is and you've got to listen? And we've been afraid to do that in the church for a long time and we're paying the penalty for it right now. The world is doomed and people don't even know it. Beloved, you've got to tell them. You must have enough love to set aside your pride and preach hope to the hopeless. The church is not a cruise ship. The world is on a cruise ship. The church is one of those Coast Guard rescue helicopters that shows up when the cruise ship runs aground and starts sinking. And the basket gets lowered and we just bring one at a time. One at a time. Jesus is coming back. And you know what? For us, it's going to be a day of profound joy when Jesus comes back. We're going to be on the ark. I think the only thing that would have overshadowed the horror that Noah felt on that day was the relief at being on the inside. It's going to be a day of joy when Jesus returns, but for many, it will be darkness and terror if they're still in their sins. So brothers and sisters, go out and in the love and kindness of Christ, bring as many as you can into the ark with you before God shuts the door.